How are you guys doing? Good to see your smiling faces this morning. You know, last week, we're going to be actually in 1 Peter chapter 5, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Last week, uh, we looked at verses 5 and 6, and I challenged you all to memorize verses 5 and 6. So how'd you do? The reason I ask is because the great I am in the person of Jesus Christ withstood the temptations of the devil by scripture. Did you catch that? God in flesh withstood the temptation of the devil in Matthew 4 through scripture. So if that's the great I am in the person of Jesus... We ought to be leaning on scripture. And so humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety upon him. He definitely cares for you. That was last week, the basics of spiritual survival. This week we're going to be driving home the final verses of 1 Peter chapter 5. Actually the whole book. And as we close it out, I want to just start with this question. It's this. Why is life so hard? I got one word. People. That's actually more theologically accurate. But people. Just think about it. Think about all of the difficulties of life and how quickly you can put a face and a name, a person in a position over you. You can put that face to it. Well, what if as we think about the difficulties of our life, what if we process these challenges and these trials, what if we're thinking about it from the wrong angle? What I mean is, do we or are we primarily a physical being having occasional spiritual experiences when we open the Bible or when we come to church? Or are we primarily a spiritual being, and we're having these physical experiences this time on earth. Which one is it? Again, we oftentimes go through life living only in the physical realm, but we know there's something else going on. We know it. We wake up every day in the rhythm of life, but we know there's something else going on, and few of us are talking about it. But it's definitely real. And so we go on thinking and processing and operating in this physical realm. And I kind of view it as like the iceberg. You know there's much more under the surface, but you're completely unaware of how much and how big this is. In the same way, as we process life, we operate oftentimes on the physical realm. But there's a spiritual reality that is very real. And we have to reconcile with and acknowledge it. And in fact, it's this very real enemy that seeks to devour us. Now, before we get into verse 8 today, I believe that Peter wrote this letter in his last few years of his life. Uh, While in Rome, things were getting very dangerous for Christians. And actually, if you were to pick up the book of 1 Peter at home, it would take you probably about 15 to 20 minutes to read it. It doesn't take that long you would feel a sense of urgency that Peter has 
for people, for the church to remain faithful to the Lord. And so you'll even see a little bit at the end of our reading today, a little code word that he uses there in case this letter gets into the hands of uh, those who are not in Christ, those who are not part of the church. So we'll see that. Let me ask the Lord to help us understand this and really wrap up the whole of the book and to understand his heart for us. Lord, I pray that you would uh, you'd help us understand your word today uh, as we go through verse by verse. Would you, through your spirit, um, <clears throat> help us understand and actually believe it and act on it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now before we start reading, I want to give you a basic uh, definition of history that has worked for me for 26 years. And uh, in case you, don't, you wonder if things stick with your kids, I was 15 years old when I learned this from a teacher, a uh, very godly teacher. And it stuck with me then, and it stuck with me through college, and it actually has, I think it's a great definition. Look at that real quick before we read. History is a record of the conflict between God and Satan as revealed in God's dealings with man. It's a record of the conflict between God and Satan as revealed in God's dealings with man. So put that in your brain as we jumpstart in verse 8. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your fellow believers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Now with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So, let's just, as, before, as we march back our, through from verse 8 on, let's start off with our first point. It's this. Spiritual battles require that we identify the enemy and his intentions in our lives. Now, this is not the first time that Peter has mentioned be sober, be vigilant, as he says in verse 8. With your hand here, we're just going to do a short Bible study a little bit back. Go to chapter 1, and we want to see what does he mean by be sober, be vigilant. And what does it, what's the definition or, or, or the action that is accompanied with being sober and be vigilant? Chapter 1, verse 13. With minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. So the first time he mentions be sober, be vigilant, he's saying is set your hope on the grace coming when Jesus Christ is revealed. So, in other words, it will save you from the roller coaster of disappointments of life when you don't put your hope in them, but your hope put your hope 
in the coming grace of God. If you know an old hymn, What a Day That Will Be When My Jesus I Shall See, those types of songs indicate that you're being sober and being vigilant. He also says, don't give in to your old evil desires here. And then he calls us to be holy or set apart from the world. So there's something that should be different about us than the rest of the world. Go on to chapter 4 with me. The second time he says to be sober, be vigilant. Verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. So if prayer is a growing thing in your life, that is part of being sober, being vigilant. And above all else, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. So he goes on to say, being sober, being vigilant is praying. It's also actively loving other believers. And then engaging in offering hospitality to people. So I have to ask so far, based upon what he has said is being sober and being vigilant, how you doing? Have you been setting your hope on things of this earth or setting your hope on the grace to come? Have you been seeking holiness or have you been seeking just to consume and be like the world? Has prayer grown in the last few years or has it become a backseat thought? Has loving others deeply, can you think of a way that in your given week you seek to actively love other believers in Jesus? Or when's the last time you offered hospitality? Why is it important to be sober or to be alert? Well, I want to ask you this question. This will indicate why it's so important. What's the first thing that comes to mind when I say this word? Ready? The devil. What's the first thing that came to mind? Does it match this? And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising, then, if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. Did your natural thought go towards a look-alike righteous? Probably not. And we tend to reduce the devil down to an imaginary figure. And according to scripture here, it's clearly not. And his servants, those who serve his purposes, look like what? Instruments of righteousness. And so how would you know if he's actively working in your life? You'll be sober and be vigilant, but how would you know? It's things that are dangerously close to godly. It's moral things. It's healthy things. They're things that are good there are things that seem wholesome, but they become the priority over God's priorities. Now, as you look at the text in verse 8, he says, Be alert and of sober mind, because he clothes himself as an angel of light. Your enemy, the devil. Now, the enemy is an adversary, and think legal opponent in court. Think about uh, as you go into court, 
and you know you're going to be charged with a certain crime that you know you didn't commit. And you know that you're going to be accused, and you know the list is long. Do you go into court unprepared? The answer is no. Here, he, the enemy is called the legal opponent. He's the accuser. And in Revelation 12, it says he is the accuser of the brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night. I don't think we understand the extent of the accusations and the evilness of the devil. He says, your enemy, the devil, who is also, devil means Satan or slanderer. And in Job 2.2, and the Lord said, where have you come from? And he said, I've been roaming throughout the earth going back and forth. So what is this accuser, this slanderer doing in verse 8? He's prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's looking for lunch. And I have to say, my poor children just get the brunt of this stuff. But my mother-in-law bought me a bag of Butterfingers this last week. She sent it in the mail. They live down in Missouri and sent it in the mail for Valentine's Day. And so Anya put this in the the cookie jar. And uh, before I even got to the jar... My children devoured it. I got two, actually, but they devoured it. And you know what's left when they got done? Wrappers. Okay? That is called devoured. And when you watch on YouTube uh, a little gazelle, a little rodent, get a hold, get, get in the jaws of a lion, what do you have when he's done? Bones. They call that devoured. And what's left when Satan really gets a hold of us? Nothing of eternal value. We think that it's, he just kills us on the spot, but really when we're being devoured, it's stuff that remains in our life that doesn't really matter for eternity. And as a pastor, I've observed far too many of the church family offering up their lives to be devoured by the evil one, and they don't even know it. It's when things like politics, it's opinions about my health, it's chasing after wealth, it's the endless consumerism, it's the endless shopping, it's the allowing my emotions to drive my decisions. It's when these become the main thing, you're being devoured and you don't even know it. In fact, many are unaware of this being devoured. They go through life with the morals intact, the health in place, and even perhaps the disciplines in place. But all the while they engage what John calls in chapter two, 1 John 2.15-17, to 17, which is of the world and not of the, of the Father. And he calls it the cravings of physical pleasure, the cravings of things that we see and the pride that comes from our lives, of our accomplishments. And so I want to encourage you with a couple questions, and I just want you to reflect on this, that the enemy, the devil, is walking about prowling, looking for someone to devour. What is devouring your schedule? What is devouring your quiet life, your quiet time? What's devouring your love for other believers? 
How about your spiritual life? Y'all know that soul that you got that is being gnawed at as you go through life? What's devouring that? What's devouring your peace with God? Consider what is being slowly diminished and pulling your love for God and his people away. That is how the enemy is working. So we see in verse 8, be sober, be vigilant. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. We'll see in verse 9, point number 2 is this. Spiritual victory requires resolve, priorities, and proximity to Christ in order to stand. You'll see it in verse 9. He says this, resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your fellow believers throughout the world are undergoing this same kind of sufferings. Now, sit open with this verse, and I just want to, I just feel like the Apostle Paul was on to the exact same thing that Peter was, and that God really wants us to grasp this. So I want to just share this verse with you, this section of Scripture in Ephesians 6. And if you've been a Christian very long, you've probably come to this passage. But I just want to encourage you and listen to some of the same elements that Peter has mentioned so far in the book of Peter that Paul mentions as well. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the people, right? But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. So it's what you do back here that prepares you for what's coming down the pipe. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. There you go. Be sober, right? And always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given to me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. So I believe, as we look at verse 9, the act of resisting him and standing firm in the faith is captured out of Ephesians chapter 6. That we first have to identify the enemy. It is not my spouse. I think Family Life years ago used to say that. If you would go to these uh, weekend to remember or these uh, conferences for married couples, they'd always say, my spouse is not my enemy. And I know that sounds like a joke, and yet sometimes those closest to us bring us the greatest pain. And we can start to think that they're the enemy. That it starts with identifying who our enemy is. The second thing it starts with, uh, the next thing is, what we do now in preparation for what's coming down the pipe. Now, I just have to make a brief confession. I like watching MMA. 
I'm sorry if I offended you. But I, you know, I watch these guys, they get in the octagon, and their skill level is amazing. Um, but one of the things you know is this. The win is decided in the preparation. It is. Nobody shows up and just wins. In fact, I think most of all, all of us are oblivious to the amount of preparation these guys go through in order to win in the octagon. We all saw a certain team on week one who was totally unprepared against the Saints, didn't we? And then the same team totally unprepared against the 49ers. It's all in the preparation, guys. And our private life and our growth with God in the word before the confrontation is where the win is found. And so as we consider the armor of God, it starts with the word. Do you believe the word of God is the absolute truth? Now, I will say, if you're one that says, well, I believe it, but some of it, and this, I'm not, I don't really believe that, you're already being devoured. Scripture also says we're to actually stand in or believe in the death and resurrection of Christ and walk in that. And not only believe it, but actually be ready to share that gospel of peace and be ready to share it with others. And then we're not only called to trust in him as our Savior, but we're called to let the Spirit of God through his word transform us and to pray and pray a lot. So standing firm, what's this mean? Standing firm in the faith. It's a moral conviction. It's a persuasion. It's a setness. Think of it like concrete. When you pour concrete, what's the rush? Because you know you have time. The clock is ticking. Here, being firm in your faith, it's as you're growing, it's actually firming up, not your opinions. We've got plenty of those in our world, right? It's actually firming up your faith in the word, and it's staying close to Christ. And so I want to encourage you in this Christian life, as we talk about being firm in your faith, I want to encourage you to refuse to let sight dictate your path in life. Hmm, that makes sense. I see that. I'll go do that. That's not the way of a child of the king. I want to encourage you, and I know a lot of times you can say, well, Seth, you don't know my circumstance. I want to encourage you to adopt a little phrase or statement when you encounter difficult things in this Christian journey. Here it is. But God. Well, I don't have the, the money for this, but God can provide that for me. Um, I can't fix my marriage, but God can. I can't save my loved ones, and I can't help them know God, but God can. I can't change this country, but God can. When we adopt the phrase, but God, we are standing firm in the faith. So we've seen so far from 1 Peter 1.5, that faith shields us. It's through faith we're shielded by God's power. We saw in chapter 4, verse 1 here, that arming ourselves with the mindset of Jesus' suffering prepares us. But we see in, throughout the whole of Scripture that it's Christ who sustains us. And I've been really processing this. Here it is. Proximity is strength. 
In other words, the closer you are to Christ, the stronger you are in times of temptation. That's it. Really, that's it? Yeah. Proximity is strength. And when it comes to successful Christian living, disciplines may be helpful, but they are not the answer proximity is. You may know this one. John 15, 5, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. So proximity, abiding in, is strength. And so without me, Jesus is saying, you will be devoured. So I want to just take a few moments and just kind of connect this to where we're at in life. Spiritual teachers, children's church workers, youth teachers, youth group leaders, uh, women's, men's uh, Bible studies, ABF leaders, hear this. You can employ... And use the right curriculum. You can employ the right methods. You can do all the right systems when it comes to teaching the Bible. You cannot fake proximity with the Lord. You can't. And you know it. You can feel it as you prepare. I've done all the preparation, but I don't feel close to the Lord. That's where the spiritual battle is won. As I share that with you guys, um, I have had these moments recently where I don't feel very effective at much anything I do, to be honest with you. Um, I have talked with Nathan a bit that I just don't feel like I'm that great of a pastor. And this is not some moment of like pity party because i okay. I just, honestly, if I had to sum it up, here's my confidence. I spend time with the Lord and I love him. And I really do love you all. And that's where I stand. And so I want to encourage you, if you're in any type of ministry role, I want to encourage you to focus and prioritize the proximity to Christ. And whether the ministry is going great or it stinks, it will sustain you. He will sustain you through those difficult seasons of life. Secondly, parents. You can employ all the right parenting techniques, read all the right books, put all the systems in place, and you cannot fake proximity with the Lord with your children. You cannot export what you don't have. So you can put all the right systems in place, get them to youth group, get them to Sunday school, and do all these things, but I keep bringing this up again and again. In the journey of parenting, God gives us our kids so that he would draw us close to the Lord. That's the extent right there. That's the business of parenting. So if you're a parent in the house, and that's a little children of adults, they're in your life so that you will walk and be closer to the Lord. And as I mentioned before, the spiritual disciplines, they can be helpful as a form, but they turn to legalism when they're not driven by our love for the Savior. So notice what he finishes out, verse 9 there. He says, resist them standing firm in the faith because you know that your fellow believers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. You are not alone. You're not alone. And when you believe you are, you start to think that your struggles are unique. And I've watched in our church family 
when we believe the lie that we're alone and that our struggles are unique, we start to isolate. We even think of righteous reasons, righteous reasons to isolate from the church family. I believe isolated sheep get devoured. And I just want to say to you all that we are all in a struggle in this Christian life. It's the same stuff repackaged differently. It's got a different exterior package, but it's the same stuff that comes up again and again. You may be saying, well, I struggle believing his word. Most of us do. I struggle craving everything I see. Anybody else in the house? Yep. I have doubts. Good company. That's where we're here together. I struggle being faithful to God in my private life. That's, you're in good company. This is what, who we are, right? I struggle with my unbelieving friends or family or unforgiveness. I struggle being faithful in the small stuff. I just get distracted. Let me just clearly say there is nothing new under the sun. And the struggles that you face are not that unique. They're just not. And believing so would be you being devoured. You've heard the phrase, we're in this together. I don't like that phrase. I've heard the last couple of years, the reason I don't like it is it's just not true. Last couple of years, what's going on in the world has impacted most people differently. So it's not we're in this together. But when it comes to believers in Jesus, who have God's spirit, believer in Jesus, check. You have a spirit? Check, okay. And you're struggling with sin, but seeking to go to him and his word, we're in this together. That really is true for the body of Christ. When it comes to the world, we're really not in this together. When it comes to the body of Christ who are trusting in a Savior who you've never seen, living for a time, not yet, trusting His grace coming down the pipe, and we're trying to live for His glory, we're in this together. This is the reason you're all sitting in this room. You all could be home. You could be doing projects, or you could be in a different church family. You've come here because there's a camaraderie. There's a, we're in this together. And the struggles that are represented here are not unique to here, or even Wisconsin, or even the U.S. They're not even unique from here compared to Latin America, or Asia, or Africa, or Europe. The struggles that we face in this spiritual journey are the same thing repackaged all over the world. How's that make you feel? The body of Christ is in this together. This is why you can actually go on vacation, come across a believer in Christ, and feel like they're your brother and sister in Christ, because they, they are, right? Or you can encounter people at an airport, and all of a sudden you're talking, and there's, there's this kindred spirit where we are in this together. And so I just want to encourage you, as you consider this spiritual battle, I have found that a lot of times people who believe that their situation is unique tend to struggle reading the word. And they don't know the word, 
or they don't know church history on how Christians of old and past have struggled. And I want to encourage you from a shepherding standpoint, do not let your struggle with reading keep you from the word. That would be being devoured. And that we've never had more resources to know what's going on in the world. And those resources can distract us from the word. Or there are resources that can actually help us. We've never had more resources for people who struggle with reading than today. And I would encourage you to use every resource under the sun to get the word of God and what God's doing across the globe in your mind and in your eyes. Let's pick it up. We're going to see in verse 10, a third point. God graciously allows spiritual battles in our life to accomplish an eternal work in us for his glory. Let's read it in verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself, uh, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Now, the purpose of suffering has an eternal purpose. If you think suffering is just suffering and there is no value or purpose in it, you will lose heart. But many of you I know have, and many Christians throughout the last 2,000 years have gone to Romans 8, 28 for this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. You guys know that? We know God's working things out. We may not understand it, but let's just face the fact, there's lots of things in this Christian life that I don't understand. doesn't make them less real. So in verse 10, he says, The God of all grace, this is the God who bestows divine benefit, favor, and credit to us. And it says, Who he called you to his eternal glory in Christ. I don't think we can overemphasize how awesome this is. The great I am has called us to eternal glory in Christ. And he makes that little funny statement, after you've suffered a little while. If you've suffered for two years, that doesn't feel like a little while. But from the eternal God, who holds time in his hand, a little while could be 80 years. After you've suffered a little while, what am I accomplishing in you in that suffering? Well, he says it right here. He'll restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Listen to what God is actually doing while we're going through this season of difficulty and suffering. The first one is restore you. That is to complete you, to bring you back to new, to repair or to mend you. It's to make you ready. It's to change you. And so I want to encourage you that when you're going through difficulties because of your relationship with Christ, take your eyes off the difficulty and look at what God is doing in your life. Here's a good indicator. It's good to look back 10 years and say, do I look more like Jesus and do I trust him more today than what I did 10 years ago? That will encourage most of you. But we see that God is looking to restore, not only to give us a ticket to heaven, but to change us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. The second thing he says there, will restore you, he'll make you strong or establish you. This is actually to set or to confirm. 
is to make one resolved in their mind. Again, think about it as concrete firming up. Suffering has a way of firming up what we believe. You lose a loved one, and you really start to firm up what you believe about the afterlife. You know what I'm talking about? It forces you back to the word, and you start having a firm resolve of what you believe. It's bringing confidence in your faith. And really, I just want to say this. Pain will bring biblical conviction like nothing else. So, he is seeking to restore us. He's seeking to establish us. And he's seeking to make us firm. This is bodily vigor. This is making one able to do something they couldn't do previously. Think of it as building your spiritual resistance muscle. It's actually preparing you, building you, so that God can get the most mileage out of your life. This is character forming. And lastly, is steadfastness. This is to settle you or to bring you to a landing place and confidence of his eternal plan. So what is God doing in the suffering and the trials of our life? God is forming a character in us for his glory. And it's really, honestly, the most important thing that he's accomplishing through our suffering. I want to read this to you. Passage out of 2 Timothy. Again, I read read you these lengthy passages because I just want you to understand that the word of God is not... Separated, it's actually very connected, and God's working through it. Second Timothy three. You, however, know all about my teaching. Paul says, "My way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my endurance, my persecutions and sufferings." So, character with suffering. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Can you see the character and the work forming? All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's something else going on in our suffering that matters more than the deliverance from our suffering. It's the improvement of our character and it's being formed for God's glory. And I just want to say this before I go on to my last point. Until we can come to a landing place that God is forming my character for his glory, and that matters more than my immediate deliverance from the suffering, we will be stuck in a perpetual state of asking God, why? I guess it depends what you want your life to be about. I would prefer, in my life, to acknowledge what he's doing, the change he's forming, 
and praising him for that change and in his timing. And it's okay to ask God to deliver you from suffering, but acknowledging and cooperating with the character building that he's doing. Let's take it home in our final point here. And our fourth one, that God's grace is the only thing that enables us to stand faithful to the end. In verses 12 to 14, you're going to see a whole lot of relationships. And uh, in his closing statement, he connects all these relationships. And I really think Peter wants the churches here to understand that they're not alone. That there are other people in this journey with Paul, or Paul, with Peter, and with the church You'll notice what he says, with the help of Silas, or some of your translations say Silvanus, whom I regard as a faithful brother. I've written to you briefly. So in other words, Silas helped Peter write this book. This is the same Silas in Acts 16 who accompanied uh, Paul and um, who also was a Roman citizen along with Paul. And Peter is giving credit to Silas for writing, but all, helping him write it, but also holding him up as an example of being faithful through difficulty. Now he goes on to say in verse 13, she who is in Babylon chosen together with you sends you her greetings. And I really believe this is code word for the church in Rome. Uh, It appears that Peter is hoping this slides under the radar for those who are not believers, for those who are not, this letter was not intended for. Um, Should this rather get into the hands of somebody who is not um, really on the side of Christ? Uh, And he doesn't want to bring trouble to the church. But essentially what he's saying is, hey, you churches in Asia, there's a church in Rome that wants to say hello. What's that make you feel like? There's other churches just like ours trying to stay faithful to Christ through hard stuff. What if I told you there's thousands of them in our own country? And hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them all over the world meeting in homes and in basements and fields and in buildings. Just like you, believing in Jesus, loving his word, trying to be faithful day by day. You're not alone. Then he injects here, And so does my son, Mark. This is John Mark, uh, who Peter and Barnabas heavily influenced throughout the book of Acts. Same guy who wrote the book of Mark. And uh, again, he's building this family feel. And in verse 14, he says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, my brother Nathan thinks everybody should do this. But... uh, Amen. Uh, I've just grown accustomed to the fact I have a wet cheek if I hang around him very long. That's just the way he is. But truly, a kiss of love just represents a family-like feel. And there's nothing that bonds people like difficulty and suffering. And God intends for the church to have a family-like feel. In fact, some of you feel closer to the church than you do your own family. That's actually okay. It's the way it's intended, it's supposed to be. If it's not family here, what are we doing? So, difficulties bonds people together. And I want to encourage you here in the church, if you tend to hold back, not wanting to share what you're going through, 
you're missing out. Because you really, really, really need to know that others in this family are going through the same stuff you are. It may be packaged differently, but it's the same trials of faith. It's the same difficulty of believing God for what he says. And so I want to encourage you to press in, lean in, and let that family of the body of Christ be that support through difficulty. Which brings us back to verse 12. What bonded these people living far away in different countries and what ultimately bonds you and me? What ultimately bonds you and me and enables us to stand firm is what Peter is saying in this verse, end of verse 12. I've written you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. We are called to stand fast in the grace of God. What is that? That God proved his forever love for us, sinners, by sending his son Jesus to live as a human being perfectly, dying on the cross in our place, and rising again and offering us friendship, childhood, and eternal life with him if we will believe in his son, Jesus Christ. That is the grace of God. The grace of God is what we're called to stand and hold fast. Hebrews 13.9 says it this way, don't be carried away by all strange, uh, strange kinds of teaching. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. And I want to just encourage you, as we wrap up this book, that we are spiritual pilgrims. We are trusting in Christ whom we've never seen. That sets us apart automatically. That hardships and attacks of Satan are part of the spiritual journey. He's the enemy. The people you're married to and the people in this room and the people at your work and the people in this world are not the enemy. Keeping a close eye and keeping in close proximity to the Savior is how we stand strong. And his coming grace that's going to be revealed when he comes will be worth it. That's what we fix our eyes on. And we don't lose heart as believers because we truly are in this together. So I really believe this scripture wraps it up and I really think it captures Peter's heart that as we travel together, as we try to stay faithful to Christ, I think Paul has it, and I would love if we could just read this together, out loud. Can we do that? It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So I encourage you to stand fast, hold fast to the grace that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And do not forget that we are temporary residents on this planet, but we have a season to glorify him and allow him to curb and make and restore this character, preparing us for heaven with him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for um, your word. Again and again, we come to it, and it shapes our thoughts, and it changes the way we think about this life. Lord, we are in a spiritual battle because our enemy, the devil, 
is seeking to devour us, but greater is he that is in me, Lord, than he that is in this world. And so we look to your son Jesus for um, salvation, for our hope, for the grace to be brought when he comes. And so as a church family, we ask that you would help us to be faithful to the end. Help us to fix our eyes upon him, the one who started all of this. Lord, we love you, and uh, we are so humbled to think that we deserve nothing, (laughs) and yet you came to give your life for us, that we might live for you and with you and in you. Lord, help our weak hearts. Without you, we will not stand. So I, I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here who are struggling with things beyond my understanding. Would your word meet them where they're at? Help them to live with a dependent, close heart to you, to stand firm in your grace, trusting what you believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.